Welcome to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad to find you again this week. This is Leanne Nguyen, your host uh, for the show. Today, I am to tell you about how I came to the questions that I pose for this show. Um, In the opener episode some three months ago, I laid out the reasons for why I think it is important to pose the questions of what it means to be human. I've been sharing with you um, how I believe that reflecting on the question would ground us in how to be in this life, how to be with one another, how to do justice to ourselves and to one another in our lives on this earth. But I have not yet shared with you why these questions are important to me, how they came to be my topic, my preoccupation, my occupation as well. As you know, I am an immigrant and a woman of color, but I'm also a psychologist. My trade is to help people get out of their own way and to get to where they want to be. My passion really is to see life, human life, unfold in the most natural, the most splendid way that it can be. I don't care who you are, where you come from, what problem you think you have. My mission is to see you take ownership of your destiny and to see you live the life that you want to live. That makes me happy. That is really the pay that I'm after. One significant part of my work has been devoted to refugees and immigrants and survivors of trauma who seek asylum in this country, in the U.S., after suffering human rights abuse. The questions that I have raised on this show come from many years that I spent listening to these patients, to people who are called in society trauma survivors. Now, just so you know, I really think that survivor is a very interesting, sometimes problematic label. The definition in the dictionary, the Merriam-Webster, of survive is to remain alive after the death of something or someone, to continue to exist or live after some catastrophe, to continue to function or prosper despite of to function or prosper. When I talk to my patients who are trauma survivors, when I really join them in the psychic landscape of their survivorship, I would hear statements such as, I don't have a life, I'm just existing. I freeze parts of me and then I look at them. I tell stories as if they belong to someone else. I'm alive but not living, I'm just here. I have made myself not human, I don't need anybody, I don't want anything. I have no control, nothing makes sense. I have erased all desire, 
Because love, money, security, all of that can be taken away in a split second. But I don't know what to do with my mind, though. I keep my body alive. I put in food, go to sleep, take medicine. I'm not afraid to die. But I ask you, what is the point? How do I get through this life from here on? Another statement. All my plans and dreams have vanished, like water rushing down the gutter. The war squashed me like a bug. And now I'm existing like a bug. I breathe, move my limbs, watch the days come and go. What is there to live for? I cannot make my mind forget what it knows about life. I cannot be with anyone. No one can understand the hell that is inside of me. I have no life. What's left for me to do but wait for this body to expire? All my patients, at the depth of their trust in me, all raise this question. How is life worth living? What should I, why should I try to live? What is it that you, Dr. Leon, can do with me and for me? How do I go on from here with what I know, with what is left? And with all my patients, when I meet them at their most authentic, the poignant question comes up. Is this what it means to be human? What does it mean to be human, to be alive, after being torn apart in your body, your psyche, after losing the foundation of your existence? So you see that the questions that I pose for this radio show come straight from the bone marrow of my work. They're not academic or hypothetical. They have been asked towards me repeatedly by actual human beings. So today, I would like to reveal to you a little bit about why these questions preoccupy me. Why, when I was approached to host a show, uh, why did I immediately make this the topic? My, this is my perspective on questions. You know, the question that we each devote ourselves to in our lives' endeavors reveals our emotional history and charts out the existential quest that we each are embarked on whether we are consciously articulating it or not. So the things that we badly want to know, they reveal the areas of need, of desire, of deprivation in our history, our personal history. What do I mean by that? I mean that each time that a question arises, it is out of a sense of not knowing, right? Of not having the answer, of not having the companionship in the questioning, if I ask myself a question again and again in my life, it is because my desire, my grasp has not been satisfied. And if I ask a question again and again to another person, it is because I seek his company in the questioning. I want his answer with me. Asking a question is a disclosure of internal lack, of desire and curiosity. But it is also an invitation toward another to join in the quest, to share in the meaning, to participate in the answer, to connect, in other words, in the grasping of the truth, in the shaping of reality and knowledge together. <clears throat> in some circles, um, I'm considered an expert <laughs> on trauma, on refugees and immigrant mental health, on the psychology of loss and displacement, in other words. But what is an expert, 
someone who has special knowledge, you would say. But I ask you, what is knowledge? How is that knowledge of the expert acquired? What does the content of the expertise reveal to you about the person who delivers it? If you look beyond the title, the armor or the seal of authority. Knowledge is based, or rather, knowledge is is acquired based on desire. Without desire, without curiosity, without some hunger, some deprivation, some lack, you don't have the drive to acquire, to find out. It is the gap between what you have and what you need. The margin between your internal life and the external world, between what you see and what is acknowledged in the outside world, the break between what is and what could be or should be or ought to be, it is that gap that drives knowledge. That is why if you see a lack of curiosity in young children or in a person, you know that something has gone awry. It takes some brutalizing of the mind and the heart for a person to not want to know, to shut down his curiosity. And when you see that shut down, you should worry about that person's capacity to connect with other human beings and his capacity to love and let himself be loved. Anyway... I think I have seriously um, digressed. Oh, (laughs) expert, yes. The expert, the one who knows a lot about something. That knowledge reveals a whole trajectory of lack and desire, of need and preoccupation. Whenever an expert is offered before you, I suggest that you not jump for the the, the easy prize of what she knows. Go for the real story of how she came to know what she knows and why that particular knowing was important, was desirable for her to pursue. You learn more from asking about the desire behind the knowledge and from asking about what it took for her to arrive to that knowledge. When I uh, testify in court as an expert or when I publish a finding, um, you know, I'm asked to present the statistics, the methodology. I have to tell the court or the reviewers how I found out what I know. Um, and in these forums, you know, you also have to tell the court about the significance of that piece of finding, that piece of knowledge, why you chose to pursue it and why you decide to share it to the court, to the public. So why shouldn't that question be asked in life of one another? Why is this important for you? How did you get to know this? Now, with with humans who are therapists, um, the training and technique and clinical experience, etc., allow you to establish a particular presence and to stay in the space of meaning making with the other person. But what you are capable as a therapist, what you are capable of hearing, of deeply hearing, is a function of what you have heard previously of life. What you recognize of the other person's songs of despair and hope is a function of your capacity to confront and play your own music of love and grief. And what you are able to translate to assist the other person in transforming her damaged humanity into something that she can behold and cherish, that is a function of your own courage to behold vulnerability and beauty in your fellow humans, and in yourself. I am um, 
I'm going to digress here because I'm, I'm reminded um, here of an exchange I had with a very famous um, and celebrated psychoanalyst many, many years ago when I was still enamored with authority and expertise. Um, I sought him out for supervision because his work was on uh Thinking on companionship in thinking and forms of knowledge that um, that are not consciously uh, articulated but shared between minds. Knowledge that because of trauma has to be cast out of consciousness and then would go on to haunt the person. So that's his his body of knowledge. So I sought him out because um, well his work is about how therapists and patient can come together you know to grapple with words and and, 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 and knowledge so um, uh, you know it's exactly what I struggle with with many patients who cannot find the words or do not have the strength to remember and tell the stories of their suffering so I sought out this man for mentoring and, and companionship and even fa- fathering and it was um, quite a rude awakening and coming of age for me. Uh, when I presented, for example, a patient, a very talented former child actress who was starving herself to death through anorexia as a way of expressing her traumatic childhood and her existential dilemma, uh, my supervisor was preoccupied with the risk of her dying on my watch, meaning under his supervision and therefore his liability. So he would uh, say to me, you know, how can you do this to me? How can you bring this patient in here? I was told I needed to be more responsible and consult a lawyer, in other words. Well, I uh, survived that. You know, we Vietnamese can take a lot. (laughs) Confucius says, follow your father's teachings, honor your father's knowledge. So fine, I went to consult a lawyer. I had a patient sign a contract to not die. And finally, I had enough. I took her off his liability and into my own and assumed sole liability for whatever would happen to her. Because, you know, Uncle Ho taught me that, you know, you just find a way underground, go into the jungle of your own resources to do what you need to do for your people. Um, And then the supervisor and I, we talked about my work outside of the quote unquote regular practice of psychoanalysis. and about my work with uh, torture victims and refugees. And then, um, you know, I got his praise, you know, a lot of admiration. He said um, at some point, you are lucky to get to work with such unusual patients. I wish I could afford to, but I can't. This piece of, of underhanded praise just tore through my soul, I have to tell you. It shoved into my face all the frayed edges of my identity as a woman of color, a displaced person, an outsider and professional who is respected, but also exoticized for her history and and her expertise. Um, As a clinician who has access to unusual specimens, um, a zookeeper, if you may dare say out loud. So this wealthy, well-known man uh, could not afford to give up on making $350 a session. And this was like 10 odd years ago. Uh, He could not afford to deal with people who have been so dehumanized, so psychologically disfigured by pain. People who may be a legal liability if they were to decide to let go of the effort to stay alive. What does it mean that I could afford to? 
Well, that conversation did it for me. I fled his swanky office facing the Metropolitan Museum, you know, filled with artwork collected from his travels to Egypt and China and Africa. And I started to question my place among wealthy, uh, predominantly white psychoanalysts who think that I'm so noble to work with these unusual populations and, and who endorse my expertise by sending me people who cannot pay much. Because, you know, those who suffering can earn 350 an hour, 350 an hour, you know, they, they are to stay on the Upper West Side, uh, not go to Brooklyn. Remember Anthony Bourdain? He did a few shows on Mexican cuisine and questioned the unquestioned racism of the industry when he asked, why do we expect that Mexican food should be cheap? Why should we expect therapy for people of color to be cheap, to be affordable? Yeah, well, I am thought of as affordable in addition to effective. Um, Well, not that it's not true that I'm affordable because I make it my mission to make my services affordable. Um, Why should only rich professional people get to tell their stories? Um, I think I'm digressing a little bit here. So let me just go on a brief commercial break. And when we come back, I will get into my um, disclosure about my reasons for this question. I'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to On Living. 
To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Welcome back, everyone. So, I was saying uh, something about knowledge and desire, um, that what we want to know of another person, from another person, with another person, reveals where we were abandoned, where we were left wanting for companionship and lacking in provisions uh, for the mind or the heart sometimes both. When we humans speak to one another, we hear what our own history and survival enable us to hear. And we speak what we think the other person is capable of hearing. Otherwise, we stay silent. So the fact that I heard these questions from my patients is a function, a reflection of my own personal existential training. It owes little to my academic theoretical training. Well, that one is required for many other things at work, but, but not this, this capacity to hear the deep questions. And please, the thing about the therapist being an objective scientist or an expert, objective authority um, with a neutral presence is not just obsolete or a myth. It is um, a subterfuge in the service of evading one's own vulnerability. And it can be, I think, hurtful and alienating because it leaves the other person swimming alone in the waters of her humanity. And it is uh, an evasion because in declining to reveal to the other person where you have been, who you are, you are giving yourself the cop-out card to not have to show to her where you're willing to go, who you're willing to be, who you're capable of being in that journey with her. So I was able to hear these questions from my patients because I was willing to because I had the emotional language, because I needed to hear and find the answer to these questions for myself. And I was able to stay in the asking, the wrestling with these questions, because I had to, I was compelled to. These patients and I found each other, stayed with each other, because for both of us, though for different reasons and under different circumstances, we both needed to find the answer. Our lives depended on it. In different ways, of course, but there was something equally compelling for each of us. These questions that my patients ask, I had heard them throughout much of my life from watching and listening to my father, my uncles, my aunts. I first heard them from my grandmother. She was born in a well-to-do family in the old um, imperial capital Hue in Vietnam. She was super bright, but because she was a girl, uh, she couldn't go to school. My grandmother taught herself to read uh, in the kitchen with the discarded newspapers that had been used to wrap meat and groceries. And she taught herself to write in the kitchen by using discarded pieces of charcoal by the cooking stove. And then later on, she taught herself to ride a horse and then a truck. And when the French came in the 1950s, she parlayed these skills to work at transporting goods for the French. And um, eventually, in between pumping out 15 children, there was no planned parenthood back then, uh, she built built a little empire in lumber and then real estate. 
when the communists took over, my grandmother had to surrender most of her holdings to the state. And many of her tenants um, who had been, you know, renting out or being allowed to, 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 to live for free in her properties. Now, because they were the proletariat and therefore part of the ruling class, they took over uh, the properties. So my grandmother lost everything to uh, to people whom she had been sheltering. Um so every morning, uh, my, my grandmother would sit in the courtyard uh, facing the streets, you know, and go on a public rant about these people, about the ingratitude, the injustice, and uh, the inhumanity of people. And buried in those um, operatic, ritualistic public rants of my grandmother was the question that my patients would voice for me 30 years later. How do I go on after I've lost everything? My grandparents had 15 children in a big house with white columns and red poinsettias that my grandmother had designed and built herself. Five of those children died before the war. Two were sent to uh, the re-education camp by the communists, and two had been sent to study abroad and were not allowed to come back to reunite with the family after the, the communists took over. And then gradually they all fled, all, 14, all, all of them except for one who stayed back to take care of them. So my grandmother died and my grandfather was left alone in that big house that had um, slowly turned moldy and gray with smoke. And neighbors would uh, relay back to us stories of him in his 90s and approaching 100, sitting in the courtyard at sunset where his wife had held court, musing out loud, I had... Ten children, what was that for? They're all gone. Some 30 years later, the questions that my patients voiced in my Manhattan office allowed me to hear my beloved grandfather's aging, dying words. I heard these questions voiced often by my father, who had his life wiped out and had to start a new life from scratch three times over. First, when he crossed the partition, the South-North partition in Vietnam, and went over to the South after the French-Indochina War. The second, when he went to France to study and had to settle there because the communists didn't allow him to come back to his wife and child after the fall of Saigon. Um, there in France, you know, this man with a PhD who used to live in an emperor's villa now had to empty... Um, chamber pots at night for wealthy elderly Parisians in order to survive. And a third time he had to start over when we emigrated to the U.S. He had to relearn a language and supported me through college by mowing lawns and cleaning out um, chemistry lab equipments at the university where I studied. I heard my my, my father's questions. Through my patients, the cab drivers and house cleaners who drive themselves forward through the streets of New York City at all hours in order to forget their past, to survive and to build a future for their children. Or they would drive themselves to exhaustion so that they cannot think about the children left behind in Congo, Afghanistan or Syria, children that they cannot kiss goodnight and send to school. I heard my father's questions 
through the elderly man now living in Queens who would make sure to have dinner heated and a sleeping cot ready for his 25-year-old daughter when she would come home from work as a nanny and from her nursing school classes. Because years ago in Albania, this man and his son were beaten up in their own house and then kept in a room at night where next door they had to listen to his daughter be raped next door by the communist soldiers. And I heard these questions churning in the lives of my uncles, who had been intelligence officers and army captains and many other war veterans, displaced men and women in the community, glorious human beings whom I only knew as sweet, but slightly demented older folks who were now shuffling in and out of menial jobs back and forth in the corridor of Texas, California, of the Vietnamese diaspora. A friend of my mother's forced into a marriage way back in Vietnam. She pumped out seven children, took them all on a boat and escaped by sea. The boat was attacked by pirates and she watched four sons drown. I would see her at dinner and picnic gatherings in Southern California, normal, beautiful. She worked, she had a house, a companion. Her children were now part of the model minority success story. But I saw the questions in her eyes fleetingly or in the sudden slump in the shoulders when a child would be heard crying in the distance. I always wanted to know how she did it, how she managed to survive what it meant to her to be alive, to be human. One or two times I did get close enough to her alone and almost started a conversation. And on both times she said, why can't you find yourself a nice Vietnamese boy to be with? Your mother would be so happy. So that was the end of it. (laughs) These um, questions permeated the picnic and dinner tables in my adolescence and young adulthood. But I didn't know the details of the backstory, and I, I didn't have the language to fully acknowledge or consciously articulate them. And I certainly didn't know the answer for my beloved scattered tribe. I knew that behind the lovely devoted human beings who were my elders, who were existing like ghosts, there had been people full of hopes and passions. I knew that behind the inarticulate questions about what, it, what, what makes life worth living now for them, there had been beautiful lives full of glorious promises that had been dashed. But what to do to reach them? What to do to retrieve them? The legacy of unbearable loss is, as I said, the killing off of curiosity, the turning away from desire. The legacy of traumatic loss for the children, for the next generation, is silence. Our parents wouldn't speak. They wouldn't want to tell us, me and my cousins and my friends, the stories of their past. But I, I am the shrink, the hunter of stories, (laughs) the Sherazad of trauma. I tell my kids the stories of what I and our family went through. But you will find this funny, <clears throat> ironic. I cannot bear to teach my children Vietnamese, to bring them to the sounds of my lost childhood. My, my daughter, my older one, begs me to teach her Vietnamese. And so I ask her defiantly, what for? What's the use? You know? And she says back defiantly, because I'm Vietnamese. <laughs> well, precisely, my love, 
because you are Vietnamese. I don't want you to devote yourself to learning a language that is only spoken by a few million surviving people whom you would probably infrequently converse with. But maybe the truth, my love, is that I don't want you to know your mother's mother tongue because I need you to know what it is like to not be able to access some part of your mother. And maybe this is the only way that I know to transmit to you the knowledge of that experience of not being able to ever fully grasp your mother and perversely to set you on a life's mission of chasing it down in your work, in your love affairs, in your life. Like many other children of survivors, I grew up in the shadow of my family's history. We children would know of that history somehow because we breathed it growing up. Many stories of loss and displacement and dehumanization that however are lost to the silence of our elders. We, the younger generation, would watch them, love them, try to reach them, and even to save them, but cannot ever really make contact with the life that was stolen and now has been buried in the silence of grief and fear. And so, we across generations remain strangers and lost to one another. And that is the part, that that, that is what drives me in this part of my work. Um, In a previous conversation with one of my guests, I shared that, um, you know, as a competent, now multilingual adult professional, I now use words and tell stories uh, for my patients with a vengeance. I relish in it. I I, I thrive on it. Um, Because I now put my life, my adult competency to use for the things that I could not do as a child. And that is to find a story that has been silenced, to find the life that has been lost and buried, to give shape and life and texture to the devastation and muteness and strangeness that is the traumatized, the alien, the, the, the silent ghosts among us. Um, in in the, the in the traumatized person, the natural inborn narrative impulse to tell stories and to share one's life experiences, that impulse is perverted. It's lost. Where there were once words and stories, there is now in the aftermath of survival, only silence and soundlessness. Again and again, people would say to me, "I have nothing to tell." I don't know. I don't want to talk about it. There's no story worth sharing here. What is erased or robbed in the traumatized person is the pleasure that we all, we normal lucky humans, that we take in telling about ourselves, the curiosity and nourishment that we can anticipate in the experience of seeing how our telling impacts on the other person and getting back the echoes, the refractions of that story from the other person and to be transformed, to grow from that person's understanding of or retelling of our story. 
Such is the cycle of mutual human transformation, the intercourse of meaning and intimacy among humans. But that cycle, that impulse is abandoned, <clears throat> is, is, is corrupted in people who have lost a heart for the business of being human. That cycle of storytelling and mutual transformation is perverted in people for whom speaking would revive the wounding. They won't speak because they are afraid of their own words, of their memories, of waking up to their own bad dream. Because for them, actually for all of us humans, to varying degrees, to speak is to give in to this. To, to the desire to connect. We speak to the other because we want to connect with him. The desire to be heard, to be recognized by another human being. To speak is to take the chance of not being understood, of not being recognized. But we all, most of us, without thinking about it, we go for that chance, we take that risk. And for those to whom the risk of not being heard or recognized feels too great, almost lethal, for whom the experience of being disappointed or rejected would be equal to a little death, a mortal re-wounding that they think they cannot afford, the solution is to shut off the desire to connect, to turn away from the faith and effort to try to reach the other human being, to remain silent about their stories. But, you know, without the stories, without the words, they would remain invisible, inscrutable, ghosts and aliens. The silence keeps the memories muted and the wounds hidden and numbed out, but then the silence keeps them isolated and alienated from the community of humans. Such is the vicious dilemma for people who refuse to speak because they are so terrified of being hurt again, who are so afraid to show their humanity because they cannot afford to be dehumanized again. Let me take a break here and find my breath, and I will find you again in a few minutes. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. 
You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is DrLeanH.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News, opinion, Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Before the break, I was talking about the dilemma that we all experience to varying degrees of of, um, pain (laughs) and terror, the dilemma between uh, silence and words, between the chance of connecting and being nourished by the contact with another human being and the risk of being disappointed slashed open again by not being understood or recognized. This tight rope between the terrible anxiety of not being recognized and the immense life-supporting reward of connecting with others, we all walk on it. We all live it. We all have that anxiety and we all have known and want that reward. And we all have to manage in this life that tight rope. It's just more dangerous and more wrenching and feels um, more impossible for some than others. And I am sharing with you in, in, in today's hour that because of my history, because of the silence that I grew up with, I have made it my specialty to speak, <laughs> to talk, to find a story also that has been silenced and um, to put into words the lives that have been erased or hidden. When I serve as a psychological expert witness in in immigration courts, um, I provide forensic documentation and testimony on the post-traumatic injuries of the, the person who is applying for asylum for legal status in this country. The lawyers need to impress on the government that their clients have suffered violence um, and deserve protection. The judges need to see the proof of that violence and need to have a psychological explanation to to understand the deadness, the silence, and sometimes the contradictions in the person standing before them begging for protection. 
but sometimes not making sense or sometimes not saying anything much. So when I testify, the question that I have to address the public is, is this person a survivor? Has he suffered violence or abuse? Is his story credible? Is he worthy of the protection of the United States of America? My overt given task is to help prove that violence has been committed, that there has been trauma, but anybody can do that, really. Anybody with a PhD can give a diagnosis of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, by reciting the standardized criteria of the technical manual for you know, clinicians or citing findings and research and so on. What makes me effective, <clears throat> an expert, is my ability and willingness to penetrate the silence and capture the words that the person does not dare speak for herself and the commitment to deliver that person's history and story to the world. In the work that I do in immigration court, the ability to deliver that story to judges is crucial and potentially life-saving. Because if judges can see the human being, then they can see beyond the alien registration number. If they are given the material, the story, which helps humanize the case, and they have they see about, you hear about 20 cases a day, if they can grab at something that would help humanize the file before them, then they can see the human being, the human life, and then they have the basis, the reason, the motivation to protect that human life and therefore grant legal status. That's my sneaky strategy. But my covert, self-assigned agenda, you know, the overt agenda is to like give the diagnosis and to try to sound, you know, like very professional and clinical. <laughs> but my covert agenda is 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 uh, is to make the alien real and human to the government, to show the life and the mind that move underneath the devastation, and and, and behind the unpronounceable foreign name. And to make the case that we should not, that we can never, ever give up on the human in the times and practice of dehumanization. And the people who I testify for, their lives depend on this. They can be saved through being recognized as human beings because they are seen as having a life worth saving. They are understood to have a mind that is worth respecting, and they are felt as having a soul worth cherishing. And I do that, I try to do that through my storytelling on the witness stand. But I too need to be recognized in my history, in my humanity, and my patients give me that recognition in unexpected, surprising ways. There is often a moment of silence, but this one is full of connection and recognition. Not of muteness, you know, or soundlessness, but a silence, a moment that is so rich and pregnant with gratitude and recognition. When the patient says to me, so you know where I come from. And soon, later on, there's always another wonderful moment 
a moment that always unravels me when the patient asks, where are you from? About six or seven years ago, there was a moment of recognition that brought it all together for me about what I was searching for, what I was seeking to do for myself through this work that I didn't know or name for myself. I was uh, finishing up uh, a forensic evaluation of a woman from Guinea, uh, La Guinea. She had fled her country with her two young daughters, two little ones. Um, they were, you know, about two and three uh, when she fled. Uh, but they were bound, uh, you know, certainly uh, for uh, genital mutilation when they would be of age, because that was that, that's part of the customs of her, of her tribe. So she decided to flee in order to spare her girls that fate. So left everything to come here, landed in JFK Airport with a suitcase and a few phone numbers scribbled on a piece of paper. Uh, fortunately for her, and again, as I said, this was almost uh, it was six, seven years ago, you know, uh, before the current zero tolerance, and before Jeff Sessions' decree that people fleeing um, quote unquote domestic matters, um, you know, would not. Uh, get protection from the U.S. So this was back then in the golden age of immigration policy. Uh, This person landed in a homeless shelter with her two young children while she was going through the asylum application process. And by the way, she's one of the lucky ones because, you know, she was able to get uh, a team of pro bono lawyers because otherwise she would have had to cough up $10,000 or so in fees. Um, to get herself a lawyer so as to not be deported or thrown into detention. So they lived in the shelter on three meals a day that that were served there. And after breakfast, you know, everybody in the shelter would have to leave and would have to stay out until dinner time. You can't stay in the shelter. It's only the place where you can sleep. So this uh, woman would spend the day in public parks, in libraries, or just walking around with her kids. And um, I don't know how, I guess through some work here and there of, of carrying grocery bags or cleaning or something, she would cobble together enough change um, to occasionally, you know, buy a lollipop or um, an Italian IC for her girls. <clears throat> Can you imagine how many ICs she could buy with $350? <laughs> Ah, so as we finished up the um, the work, the evaluation, uh, we said goodbye, you know, to meet again in court when I would testify and present my findings. She paused halfway through to the door and turned around um, from the door and asked me, were you born in this country? And I was just very taken aback. Um, I said no. Um, And there was a look of recognition on her face about our shared colonial history. You know, we had been speaking French until then, but I didn't reveal to her um, why. And um, so she said, she, she grabbed her daughter fiercely. And she said, I would like to meet your mother. J'aimerais bien rencontrer votre mère. Je voudrais lui, as, lui, lui demander comment elle l'a fait. 
comment est-ce la déménager? Something like that. I would like to ask your mother how she did it. I have never dared ask my mother how she did it. How she decided to take me on a boat, gave me a semblance of normal childhood while living under a piece of tarp in a refugee camp. How she managed going from being this vital, amazing, professional woman in Vietnam to cleaning toilet in Paris so that she could send me to study in England. I would like to ask my mother, too, how she did it, but I didn't dare. The pact of silence, you know. She wouldn't tell me anyway. <clears throat> but that patient made me realize that the question lives in me, always, as I dedicate myself to finding and retelling stories that have been buried, unspoken. There is my own story that lays unclaimed. My patients allow me to reach for that story through the questions that they voice about themselves and then toward me. Where are you from, Leon? How did your mother do it? What is it that you do for us, with us? How did you get here? How are you like us? So I do this work, this talking, speaking, listening, questioning. I do this in court, in my office, and on this show with you. Not because I can afford to. I do this because I have to. I need to find my story to be recognized in my exile and expertise. This work, this show, is my purpose because my life depends on it. I need to do this in order to find my way to questions that I have not been able to voice. And so I want to do this in order to know myself and to stay close to my story and my history. So as I take leave, I want to leave you with these questions. What does your life depend on? What is your purpose in this life? What compels you? How does your history follow you, drive you in the life that you are living now? How do you find yourself in the things that you do? Next week, as I said before, I will hold an, um, an open hour to take questions or to read your emails. I would very much like to hear your answers and reflections and questions on what we've been talking about so far. It's open call, so please reach me, write to me, or call in. So I will find you hopefully next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Take care, everyone. Thank you for tuning to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human. Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And enjoy being alive.